If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 100. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one right in front of you in the pew. It's on page 469. Today, we are finishing up this brief series on these missionary psalms. So over the past three weeks, including today, we've been looking at psalms that celebrate the nations coming to know God. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 67, where God uses his people to see the nations come and praise him. Last week, we looked at Psalm 96, where the earth and nations are called to worship the Lord. And today, in Psalm 100, we'll see that the whole earth is invited to come worship the Lord. It's an invitation to the earth. Psalm 100 is the climax of Psalm 93 to 100. So if you were to read through chapter 93 to Psalm 100, what you would see is that the psalmist now is erupting in praise and thanksgiving to God and inviting the whole earth to come and worship. This is how one theologian put this in context. If we read Psalm 93 to 100 as a continuing context, the nations move steadily into the center of the event drawing closer and closer to Israel and its God. Psalm 100 as the climax of the composition, as as the climax of this, these series of psalms, integrates the nations of the world in worship before the God of Zion. They should and they will shout aloud to Yahweh, serve him with joy and experience his nearness like Israel And together with it. You see, in this psalm, God is inviting the nations to come to him and be a part of his people. You see, God has a a redemption plan. And it began with Israel, with Abraham, becoming the father of many nations. And as we progress through the scriptures, we see that God's plan is coming to fruition. That God is drawing to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the heart of our God. It is his desire for the nations to worship him. What a, what a great weekend, right, to, to think about the nations. Memorial Day weekend. It's a, it's, a, it's a weekend where we celebrate our nation, which is a nation among many nations. It's a nation that God saw fit to bring revival to, has, has saw fit to send out thousands of missionaries over the past 200 years. It's an incredible nation where the gospel's gone forth to other nations. We've been used as a light to other nations. We've been used as a missionary force to say with this psalmist, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. I pray that God would continue to use his church in this nation to see more and more nations worship him. We have a great responsibility as believers, as followers of Christ, to invite the whole earth to worship the Lord. As we begin Psalm 100, I want you to look at the, right right before verse 1, there's a subscript. It says a psalm for giving thanks. Most of the psalms have a little subscript that give you some details. This one says it's a psalm for giving thanks. This psalm teaches us and all the earth 
to give thanks? Is there anything, is there anything that motivates thanksgiving more than a right understanding of God, of who God is, and an invitation into a relationship with him? This morning, our big idea that we're going to trace through this psalm is the whole earth, the whole earth is invited to worship the Lord. All inhabitants of the earth are invited to worship the Lord. I'm going to read Psalm 100 and then we're going to pray. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he, he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you with gladness, with joy, with singing. For you alone are worthy of our worship. Oh God, we know the nations worship other gods. Many people in our nation worship other gods. But Lord, here we see an invitation to come and worship you alone. For you are God. You're the one who has created us. Oh God, now would you, would you send your spirit? Would you allow us to understand your word? Grow in our knowledge of who you are. And then that be followed by obedience to what you've done in our lives. Oh God, we, we ask you now to, to teach us, guide us by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The whole earth is invited to worship the Lord. As I was reading verses 1 through 5, this is a short psalm, right? Five verses. A few weeks ago we were looking at five chapters in Genesis. So this, is, this could come to a, a, as, a, as a, like a, a breath of fresh air, right? Just five verses. This is incredible. But as I was reading this psalm, I wonder if you picked up on the pattern that the psalmist is using here. You see, verses 1 through 3 actually parallel verses 4 through 5. In 1 and 2, and even the first part of 3, you see there's a call, there's an invitation, there are commands that the psalmist is calling to the earth to do. And then at the end of verse 3, we see this, this just incredible doctrine of God. Hey, the Lord is God. That's who he is. We are his. We are his people. Like, so, so verse 3, the last part of verse 3 gives us this doctrine of God. And then again in verse 4, verse 4 parallels 1 through 3a. And in verse 4 again we're called, hey, enter, come into his presence, bless him, give him thanks. And then the psalmist ends this psalm that parallels the latter part of verse 3 with another doctrine of who God is. Today, within these five verses, we're going to have a little, uh, little semi-session of the doctrine of God. You'll pick up on that later on. But what we see the psalmist doing as he opens up this passage, and we see that through verse 3 and even in verse 4, we see that there is an invitation. There is an invitation. The earth is invited to worship the Lord Within these four verses, we see seven commands directed towards our response to God. 
These commands are addressed to people. They're addressed to the inhabitants of the earth. The first command we see in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. The call is for all inhabitants of the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord. You see, this is the opposite of what the earth is doing. The inhabitants of the earth are not making a joyful noise to the Lord. I don't know if you've been around people that are not followers of Jesus. They're not making a joyful noise to the Lord. Have you ever been into a Hindu temple in Israel? Have you ever been into a mosque? Right? Have you, have you ever been into these other places of worship? They're not making joyful noises. Many times, they're making screams of terror. They're making, they're, they're, they're sobbing in fear. I can remember one of the first times I walked into a Hindu temple. And my ears were filled with sounds that I've never heard before. Screaming, sobbing. The same rhythm over and over again. You see, that's the opposite of what the psalmist is calling the earth to do. Here the, the psalmist is saying, no earth, inhabitants of the earth, come and make a joyful noise to the Lord. I think this is similar to what Elijah would have heard on that mount when he was directed by the Lord to go and make, a, make an offering. And then all the prophets of Baal came and made an offering. It says that they were crying out to Baal, cutting themselves. Baal didn't show up because he's a false god. And then Elijah just simply prayed to Yahweh, the creator God. And like that, God showed up. You say, we're called to be joyful worshipers of the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We also see in this, as one, as one commentator put it, we, we're called to have a missionary spirit, just like this psalmist. You see, his eyes are not directed on himself. He's not directed on Israel, but they're directed on all the inhabitants of the earth. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And then he instructs on serving the Lord with gladness. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. How are we to serve the Lord? With a glad heart. With a happy countenance or attitude. It's a, it's a holy joy. That's the way we serve the Lord. We work and we worship. They go hand in hand. We serve with gladness. Romans 12.1. Paul gives us this incredible just, just information, doctrine of who God is in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then in 12.1 he says, brothers, by the, by the mercies of God. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable God, for this is your, this is your reasonable act of service. This is, your, this is your act of worship. You see, God wants, or Paul is instructing us on serving God as a reasonable act of a reasonable response of who he is. We worship with gladness. We serve with gladness. Serve the Lord, all the earth. Third, come into his presence with singing. Come into his presence. We're invited. All the earth is invited to come into the presence of the Lord. I want you to think about this. The presence of the Lord in the scriptures, God is, is, is about to 
come into Moses' presence. But he tells Moses to go hide behind a rock and cover your face. Right? He has to be covered in the presence of the Lord. Here, we're invited to come into the presence of the Lord. Elijah, I mean, sorry, Isaiah, when he sees the throne filled with the glory of the Lord, he falls down on his face. He can't even look. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Right? That's the right response. But here, God is inviting us to come into his presence with singing. You see, when, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we come into his presence with singing. That's one of the reasons we're exhorted as a church throughout the New Testament to sing. To sing hymns and songs together. This is what we do. We come into his presence with singing. In Revelation, as John is, is just bombarded with all of these visions of heaven, of, of when Christ returns, the elders, the angels, the multitudes, what are they doing? They're singing praises to God and to the Lamb. We come into his presence with singing forth. We're exhorted in verse 3, know the Lord. Know the Lord. Understand, have knowledge about. We're going to see this in the rest of verse 3 and in verse 5. There is an abundance of knowledge to know about the Lord. It's inexhaustible. And the beauty of this life and the next is that we'll never exhaust it. We'll continue to learn and know the Lord for eternity. Let that, uh, just, just take that in for a second. For eternity. Year after year. Decade after decade. Century after century. Millennium after millennium. We are going to stand in the presence of God and continue to learn all about who he is and what he's done. It's inexhaustible. Fifth, we see, as we jump down to verse 4, we're invited. The invitation is to enter his gates and enter his courts. Enter his gates and enter his courts. And it says, with thanksgiving and praise. This is how we enter into these gates. You see, these gates and courts in the temple were closed to those who were unclean. But here the unclean, all the inhabitants of the earth, are invited to enter with thanksgiving and praise. You see, his gates and his courts, they've been opened to all the earth through the new and living way. They've, they've been opened through the promise of God being fulfilled in Christ. This is good news for us, church. The, the unclean, the rebellious sinner can now enter into his gates his courts with thanksgiving and praise. This is great news. Six, in verse four, we're exhorted to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to him. Yes, we enter his courts with thanksgiving, but here we're told to give thanks. I love this, this imagery that Spurgeon draws out on giving thanks. He says, gratitude this giving thanks, is that oil which makes the wills of life revolve easily. And if anybody ought to be grateful, surely we are the men and women for whom the Lord has done so much. 
from, I mean, just from, from these few verses, we see the characteristics of a thankful person. A, a thankful person is, is joy-filled, is glad, sings, gives thanksgiving, and praises God. This is, this is a joy-filled, thankful person that the psalmist is calling out from the earth. You may be thinking, man, this is an area that I struggle in. Thanksgiving, giving thanks. I know it is for me. It's one where I normally just look at the, the bad and I forget to thank God for all the good that he's doing and really everything he's doing. So how do we cultivate, right? How do we cultivate a heart of thankfulness and gratitude? I'm going to hold off on answering that for now. Because I think as we continue to move through and we see this next section of the psalm, I think you'll see how to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving and praise. Lastly, the seventh command exhortation we see is bless his name. Bless his name. Admire who God is. Acknowledge what he has done. John Piper, he defines bless the Lord or bless his name as this. It's to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. <clears throat> bless the Lord. Bless his name. That's what it means. It's, a, it's, a, it's recognizing, it's acknowledging who God is and what he's done, and through that, expressing our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. Bless his name. Bless his name. So the psalmist is, is inviting, it's an incredible invitation. He's inviting all the inhabitants of the earth to come and worship, to sing praises. He says, make a joyful noise. He says, serve. He says, come into his presence. He says, know him. He says, enter his gates, enter his courts, give thanks, bless his name. But at you may be like me, as you're sitting there, you're like, why? Why can I do this? Why should I do this? And how am I able to do this? You know, you may be, you may be sitting there this morning thinking, man, my life is a wreck. <laughs> I'm not glad at all. I'm not happy. I'm not joyful. I don't want to sing. I've lost a loved one in the last two weeks, right? I've lost a job. And my relationships are a mess. I believe verses 3, latter part of verse 3 and 5, will give us our motivation and our ability to accomplish these commands. The psalmist, again, just, just think about this. Think of how terse these verses are for a second. He is going to present us with eight attributes, characteristics of God in five verses. There is so much packed into these little, these, this little psalm, these five verses. You know, earlier when we were thinking about knowing the Lord, knowing the Lord, I said it's inexhaustible. Right here you can spend a lifetime thinking about these attributes that we're about to go through. You see, this is the motivation. Understanding who God is and what he has done motivates us 
to live lives of obedience. All the earth come and make a joyful noise to the Lord. Praise him. Enter his presence. Why? Because this is our God. This is the God who created you, who who desires to know you, who wants to call you into his family. This is the motivation for our lives. How do we cultivate a thankful heart? We know our God. We understand who he is. This is what the scriptures are about. They're explaining to us who this God is is and what he's done. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this. This motivation is not because I said so. You know, a lot of times as parents, that's what we say. Why do I want to do that? Why do I need to do this? Because I said so. Right? It isn't just do it. Right? That's not our motivation. That's not, what, that's not what the psalmist is getting at. That's not what God wants our motivation to be. It's grounded. Our motivation, the motivation for the nations to come, for the earth to come into the presence of the Lord, is grounded. The foundation of it is on who God is and what he's done for us. That's our motivation in life. So the motivation, we're going to look at Really, eight characteristics and attributes of God presented in this psalm. Look back up to verse 3 with me. See, like I said earlier, it's paralleled. Verses 3 and verse 5 are paralleled. Know that the Lord, and then he rattles off all of these attributes of God. Verse 5, for the Lord is. This idea is because, right? For, because the Lord is good. Because... The Lord is God. Like he is, he's making a point here through parallelism. I should have made a slide for you guys that, that show verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 5 paralleled together, side by side, so then it, it makes sense. But that's what he's doing here. He's just repeating himself. But in the, in the repetition, he is giving us an incredible doctrine of God. It's like reading a systematic theology book this morning. So, who is he? Why? And how are we motivated to come to him? Well, first, know that the Lord, he is God. You see, the Lord, Yahweh, is his covenant name that he gave to Moses in Exodus at the burning bush. Who who am I going to tell sent me? He's supposed to go to Israel and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He says, who am I going to tell the Israelites who, who sent me? He says, I am who I am. Yahweh, but Yahweh is God. We are not. (laughs) He is God. We are not God. He is the one who oversees all. He rules all. I think a great summation of who God is is found in Romans 11, 33 to 36. As I mentioned earlier, Paul has spent the whole of Romans up to this point explaining all of these deep doctrines of who God is of justification, of sanctification, of glorification. He is just he uh, he is writing to the Romans and laying out salvation. And then this is how he concludes that treatise. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
That's our God. That's our God. He is God. Second, he is creator. He is creator. It says there, he is God. It is he who made us. He made us. Genesis 1 and 2 describe the creation of humanity. He breathed life into them. He formed Adam out of the dust. He created them as worshipers. Psalm 139 verse 13 tells us that God formed us and knitted us together in our mother's womb. He is the one who creates. He is the one who made us. Third, as we see here, we are his. We are his. He is rightful owner. He is rightful owner. He created us and we are his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, you're not your own. Our bodies are not to be used any way we want them to be used. You know, our culture has really messed this up. They think they can just use their bodies any way they want. They can, they can call themselves anything they want. That is not what we see in the scriptures. That is not who we are. We're slaves to God if he's redeemed you by the blood of Jesus. He is our rightful owner. He has bought us with a price through the sacrifice of his son. And since he is, since we are his and he's our rightful owner, Paul ends this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 with, so glorify God in your body. Again, that is our response. Glorify God. This is the only reasonable act of service. This is the way we are to live, for we are his. And then he goes on and he says, we are his people. You see, he, our God is also sovereign ruler. He is he is our God and we are his people. One, one theologian, as he's breaking down the Old Testament, he says there are three rhythms or creeds that we see in the Old Testament. This is one of them, and we'll see a second one in a few minutes. This would be the, the relational creed, the relational rhythm, where we're in relationship with God. God is our God and we are his people. This is seen throughout the scriptures. We, do, we devote our lives to him. There's a problem here, though. It comes up in Hosea. It comes up in 1 Peter. Sin has separated us from him. Hosea, Israel is said to not be God's people. You're no longer my people because of your sin and your rebellion against him. They're no longer his people. Yet, in Hosea 2.23... In God's loving kindness, he says, you're now my people. You're now my people. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2.10. Once, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see this invitation to all the inhabitants of the earth to, to come because they are his people is finally fulfilled in Revelation 21. When the new heavens and the new earth come, this is what's declared. You're our God and we're your people and we'll dwell with you forever. This is that relational creed that finds fulfillment in Christ Jesus. 
He is our sovereign ruler. And then the psalmist continues and he says, the sheep of his pasture. You see, God is our shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. We need a shepherd because sheep are not smart animals. I don't know if y'all have seen that, that little video on, I, I guess it's on Facebook or YouTube, but there's a sheep stuck in a crevice. I don't even know if it's real, but it's funny and it proves a point, right? There's a, there's a sheep stuck in a crevice and these guys come out and they're like, they're pulling on this sheep, right? Pulling on him. And finally the sheep pops out and they drag him over here and the sheep goes, and he jumps back in and he gets stuck again. Like that's who we are without the good shepherd. We just keep going and doing crazy things. We keep rebelling. We keep running after other gods. Here he says, we, we are the sheep of his pasture. And we serve a good shepherd. Jesus is called the good shepherd in John 10. In Psalm 23, all of you are familiar with Psalm 23. It's read at so many funerals. But listen to what it says. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. We're his sheep. We don't have to want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He provides all of our needs. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He is our good shepherd. Jesus calling the sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, there are a lot of shepherds out there. Israel dealt with a lot of shepherds. They were puny shepherds. They were actually eating the sheep. God says, I'm going to provide you with a good shepherd. And he sends his son. And his son says, I am the good shepherd. And I'll lay down my life for the sheep. So my question to you as we are looking at this psalm is, as you are, you're invited. All the earth is invited to make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth is, is called to come into his presence. We are his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd and he says, the sheep know his voice. Have you heard? Have you heard his voice? He's calling. He's calling you to come and find rest in him. He's, he's inviting you to come. All we do is acknowledge our sin and acknowledge Jesus as the good shepherd. And we can turn. We can turn from our sin and find life in Christ because he laid down his life for the sheep. We sang about it this morning in our songs. Jesus died a death on a cross that we were supposed to die. He took our sin. He died our death. Yet he was raised on the third day to newness of life. And if we confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Jesus, the good shepherd, has laid down his life for the sheep. And here you're called the sheep of his pasture. The sheep of his pasture. The psalmist continues. And he says for, and this is in, this is in response to verse 4, right? Enter his gates and courts, give him thanks, bless his name. For, because, the motivation, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is good. He is good and he does good. What does it mean that God is good? 
You know, er earlier in the Psalms, we're, we're exhorted to taste and see that the Lord is good. So what is this? this it's one of his attributes. His, his goodness, his justice, his, his, his rightness. He's good and he defines good. Remember back in Genesis 1. It's good. It's good. God is seeing. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Right? He is the one. Adam and Eve tried to define just, or divine goodness. They looked at the fruit that they were told not to eat. When you eat of this, you will surely die. It was good to her eyes. And she took and ate. You see, we try to define goodness, but God is the one who defines goodness. The knowledge, right? How do we... So, so how, he, is the, he is good and he defines good. So again, I, I, I want us to, to think practically, how do we apply God's goodness to our lives? How do we apply God's goodness when our life isn't good? When we're going through suffering, when we're going through pain, when we're going through things that cause us to ask, God, why? What's going on? The knowledge... Right, again, we don't want to just keep it in our heads. We, we learn a lot about God in this passage. We learn a lot about God in, our, in, our, in the scriptures. The knowledge that God is good must move to experiencing his goodness. Well, where has he been good to you? Where has he been good? Let's recount those things, right? Paul, right, constantly in his letters, he, he wants us to recount God's goodness and give thanks. He saved you. He's given you abundant joy in Christ. If you're a member of a church, he's given you a church family. Like, this is incredible news. This is goodness on display. All these are gifts from a God who is good. So as we're, as we're going through suffering, as we're going through pain, let's lean into one another. Let's lean into who God is. Let's lean into to knowing, but also experiencing this goodness through what he's done for us and who he's provided for us. God is good, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His love endures forever. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible, the way um, the writer describes this love. It's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what it is. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the love of our Lord. That's the love of God. Earlier, as I mentioned, we saw the relational rhythm. You're our God and we are your people. But here we see this character rhythm probably familiar with this, this idea of his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations in, in Exodus 33, verses 6 and 7. Again, God is revealing himself to the people. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here we see God's character on display. This idea of Exodus 33, 6 and 7 is seen throughout the Old Testament. This is that, this is that character of who God is. His love endures forever. 
And then as, as we close out verse 5, his, his faithfulness to all generations, he is a faithful God. God does not change. What he says he's going to do, he does. His faithfulness is seen in how he has dealt with all generations. We can see that. This is the beauty of, of our congregation. We can see that right here in our congregation. We have multiple generations represented right here. Right? This, is, this is something we, we prayed for in planting a church, that we would have multiple generations from the beginning, and God has blessed us in that. You don't have to raise your hand unless you want to, but how many of us can attest to God's faithfulness from generation to generation, right? We can attest to that. I mean, I can attest to it by him just simply providing me with, with, with friends and family that, that shared the gospel with me. Like, that's his faithfulness. Right. He's continuing to build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. God remains faithful. He's been faithful. For 2,000 years, he's been building his church. For, for thousands upon thousands of years, he's been redeeming nations to himself. He is faithful to all generations, forgiving iniquity, showing his steadfast love. As, as Rich and Shannon come back up, as we celebrate right here, we're, we're told to come into his presence with singing. Today we've seen an invitation to the earth to come and worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Come into his presence with singing. Serve the Lord with gladness. The motivation for coming is so clear. We have a God who's revealed himself to us in his word. Come and worship him, for he is God. He made us. We are his people. We are his sheep. He is good. He's loving. He is faithful. This is the message that we take to the world. Go therefore and make disciples. That's what we want to do at King's Church. We want to see people find Jesus. This is the message we take. We want to equip you to, to find joy. Right? There's joy in Jesus. Enjoy him. So we see joyful noise, gladness, singing, praise, thanks in this psalm. And then as we, as we come into that invitation, we're invited. As we open that door and we go, now we have a message to proclaim. We've just seen what we're, we're proclaiming. Oh, sheep, would you hear his voice today? Friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, let's go and tell people about this incredible God and his son who gave his life for us. Today, as we continue to, to be in his presence, let us give thanks, let us bless his name. And then as we are about to sing our last song, let us, let us sing with praise. Let us sing with joy. Let us sing with glad hearts. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for your word. Lord, it teaches us, let this truth about who God is stir our affections for you. God, fill us with joy 
at being called your sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.